This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome back to The Bunker. I'm Andrew Harrison. On this week's podcast, it's just over 12 months since the very first British death from coronavirus. A year later, how are we handling the complex business of returning to normal life? We're going to be talking about vaccine passports, a way to get restaurants, gigs, sport and other large gatherings moving again, or the start of a two-tier society with severe consequences for civil liberties. Also, the former editor of The Guardian, Alan Rusbridger, joins us to talk about his new book, News and How to Use It, The Future of Journalism and How to Navigate a Fake News World. And Fraser is coming back. Is that a good idea? How will the comedy of neurotic 90s narcissism fit into an even more self-obsessed present? And what are we going to do with all those tossed salads and scrambled eggs? All that more on today's Bunker. Welcome back to the weekly panel edition of The Bunker. If you're enjoying the podcast, you can, of course, support us on the crowdfunding site Patreon. And we have exciting breaking news for Patreon backers. We're doing our first Bunker live Zoom on Thursday, the 25th of March, 8pm, an evening of quality political squabbling with the regulars in the podcast. And it's exclusive to Patreon backers, live on video, in case there aren't enough video conferences in your life. (laughs) Invitations to register will be on their way to Patreon backers soon. And if you want to sign up, just search Patreon bunker podcast for details one day we'll decide whether it's patreon or patreon now let's meet today's panel first up we've got the editor at large at politics.co.uk ian dunt hello ian dunt hello so it's budget week and all the corporation tax rises have been heavily trailed and all that stuff but on sunday sophie ridge had sunak on uh, on her show and she said she put it to him that he's going to raise taxes now just to cut them before an election there was no denial are people ever going to get wise to the old fake tax boom wheeze seems very kind of 80s revivalism yeah, I, I don't know, man. I don't know because it's it, he, they don't even fucking hide it anymore. You know, like I mean, he's he's he, he can't even be bothered really to conceal what he is doing, which is ultimately addressing an economic point to a political schedule, a self-interested political schedule. But this time, if anything, it's more pernicious than usual because you know what? You can't. It's really genuinely hard to find an economist who thinks that you should be raising taxes right now. Like, ultimately, you do not want to be doing anything that is going to take demand out of the economy. And there's no one really that suggests it would. There is going to be another period where things are going a bit better and there's a bit more inflation, different interest rates, and we're going to think, yep, there are things that we want to tax. And among them will be things like corporation tax, capital gains tax. That is not where we are right now. And it doesn't matter really whether you talk to sort of proper red meat Keynesians or whether you talk to sort of dried out fiscal hawks of the highest order. None of them are saying that this is a very good idea right now. And yet it seems that that is the proposal at the moment simply because it fits with their electoral timetable. I love the idea of red meat Keynesians. That could be our next mug, I think. <laughs> while we're on uh, while we're on the subject of taxpayers' money, the government's been taking out advertorials across the press, masquerading as news articles with the correct typefaces and all of it, telling everybody what a success Brexit has been. What do you make of that? I mean, are oh, these people. Okay, so there's so much that's fucked about this that it's actually quite difficult to know exactly where to start. I mean, one of the first, the most irritating thing of all really is that there's a paragraph in these articles where they basically blame businesses 
for not preparing in time. And you just think like, well, you did this on Christmas Eve and it was enacted days afterwards. There are many businesses that just didn't have the money to prepare for what they were doing. And that was because the government proceeded on the negotiation strategy where it didn't care about what they told it, about what they needed for the functioning of their business and screwed them over anyway because sovereignty. And yet put all of that aside, like the obvious irritation that you feel when you're reading this stuff, just paid for government propaganda inserted into newspapers. What really sort of gets me about this, but actually gives me a sense of sort of optimism about where we're going is that they feel the need to do it in the first place, right? Like, I mean, look at the mail. I mean, the mail previously didn't need to get paid to put in government propaganda about Brexit. It just did it for free. Now <laughs> we do. And that's because of something that I think that sort of those on the Remain side haven't really recognized a, a small but shuttle but important shift that's taking place in the debate, mostly because COVID crowds out everything else. But it's that actually in the pages of, you know, the Sunday Times, and the pages of the Telegraph, on the BBC, on ITV, you are getting reports of these problems that aren't really being dressed up in any way. I mean, they're not creating some sudden sort of pulsating remain movement that's about to overturn Brexit. What they are is slowly but surely developing a narrative where it's been a really long time since anyone said anything really could show anything concrete positive about Brexit, but you just get these repeated negative stories. So the fact that these, they're annoying, but the fact that they exist point to the fact that the government feels like it's losing the sense of narrative on this issue, like there just isn't enough positive stories around Brexit out there. You may even come to talk about the funding of the media later. Could, could you imagine such a thing? Uh, <laughs> also joining us, we have uh, Atlantic staff writer Yasmin Serhan. Hello, Yasmin. Hey there. Last Friday, we'd been sort of looking at this for the for the whole week, and it kind of happened middle of Friday. The UK Supreme Court ruled that Shamima Begum cannot return to Britain to fight for a citizenship case, and the story just seemed to come to a screeching halt there. And are there going to be long term consequences for this, or is it is it that it done and dusted? I mean, at least in terms of Begum's case, it means that obviously, as, as the court said, that she cannot return home to appeal uh, the Home Office's decision to revoke her British citizenship, which, which as we all remember, um, was a decision that was taken by Sajid Javid back when he was Home Secretary on national security grounds. So it, it's kind of hard to see how her case kind of goes forward, because as I understand it, at least, she can still appeal the decision. She just can't come back to Britain to do it. But given the fact that she's in a detention camp in northern Syria and reportedly doesn't have access to her lawyers, um, it's I kind of struggle to see how she does that. And I mean, in terms of the wider sort of ramifications, um, it, it is kind of striking because, you know, it really does set a precedent in terms of how Britain decides it wants to handle it's nationals who, it, like in the case of Shamima, who, you know, grow up in the country, who get radicalized and groomed in the country, and then who leave and take part in, in whatever uh, atrocities or, or that, that she may have been a part of. You know, I, I think it, the big question is like, you know, for me at least, is is Britain basically saying that she's not our problem anymore, but then whose problem is she? Um, you know, they make the, they've made the claim that she could get Bangladeshi citizenship through her parents. Uh, they make the, you know, so it's a question of, does she, you know, is she Bangladesh's problem? Is she Syria's problem? I mean, she's British. She, I, I think there's an argument to be made that she, you know, perhaps should be Britain's problem. And so it's, I think it does kind of make a pretty, it prompts a conversation, I think, about, you know, what does it mean for a country to kind of take responsibility for its citizens, even the ones who do pretty terrible things? 
Yeah. Uh, we are on media this week. You had a big piece in The Atlantic uh, about Donald Trump's failed takeover of America's international broadcasters, Voice of America and so on. He tried to install kind of flunkies there and it hasn't worked out. T- tell us what's happened. It was a really interesting and protracted battle that kind of happened towards the tail end of his presidency. And I think rather understandably kind of got lost between the insurrection and impeachment and everything else that was happened um, that was happening at that time. But basically the, the short of it is that over the summer, Trump's nominee to lead the U.S. Agency for Global Media, which is the agency that runs all of the U.S.'s state-funded international broadcasters. So Voice of America, as you mentioned, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, which is the one that I focused on for this piece, um, and a few others. Um, and, And basically, this person was only really, his name is Michael Pack. He was in the job for seven months, and he really wasted no time. The moment he got in, he fired all the network heads. He um, stacked their traditionally bipartisan governing boards with fellow pro-Trump ideologues. Um, And he got rid of an editorial firewall that protects these networks from government interference on the grounds that it was harmful for the agency and for U.S. national interests. So he basically governed the agency with this idea that all of them should be telling America's story, as he put it. It's worth noting that at least for VOA, that actually is their mandate. Though I think um, a lot of VOA journalists will tell you that telling America's story is different to arguing America's position um, or, or arguing in favor of its policies. Um, but but for the folks at Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty, who, mind you, like they operate in countries where a free media does not exist. Their remit is not to tell America's story. It's simply to be um, surrogate journalism, as they put it. I mean, this seven-month, almost eight-month crisis was pretty existential for them because it really, you know, not only threatened their credibility, but kind of threatened their very existence. Like if they're not there to provide independent news and information, then what is, what is it that they're doing? So now, of course, you know, the Biden administration came in, Michael Pack and everyone he had brought on was fired or let go. But but I think there are still a lot of big questions um, that need to be raised about, you know, how do we prevent this from happening under a future administration down the line? I think it's a really important chapter that could probably easily be glossed over, particularly given all that's happened under the Trump era. But um, I think it's an important one, too, particularly for a massive, massive media network um, that yeah. plays such a big, big, important role around the world. Speaking of massive, massive media networks, this week's special guest is Alan Rusbridger, ex-editor of The Guardian, pianist and author of the new book, News and How to Use It, What to Believe in a Fake News World. He edited The Guardian for 20 tumultuous years from 1995, including high-profile episodes like the Neil Hamilton defamation case and the publication of WikiLeaks and the Edward Snowden material. He relaunched the paper in Berliner format and championed the free at point-of-use online journalism that defined the paper's future. He handed over to Kath Viner in 2015. He's now principal of Lady Margaret Hall in Oxford and a member of Facebook's new Oversight board. Hello, Alan Rusbridge. Welcome to the bunker. Hello. Literally in my own bunker. In, in oh, my are bunker. you? Yes. Are you actually in, in the basement? I'm, of I'm, I'm in a, a, a garden bunker. Ooh, we need one of them. Yeah. Um, so it's tempting to think that now that Trump's gone, we're somehow through the post-truth era and looking at possibly a post-post-truth era now that its loudest advocate is off Twitter and on the sidelines. I'm guessing you're going to think that's optimistic. Yes, I mean, I think all the, all the all the surveys show really quite a dismaying picture of people not knowing what to believe any longer. Uh, and Trump w- was rather brilliant at, at at making that worse, you know, by by taking probably the best newspaper in the world, the, the New York Times, and saying that's fake news, was a kind of way of just saying, well, look, you believe anything, you might as well believe me. Um, and it, it's you know, it, it, you can't blame it all on Trump, of course, but but it's um, it was frighteningly effective. 
We're going to talk about social media versus old school media in more detail later. But um, you're on the Facebook oversight board and Facebook has just come a bit of a cropper in Australia where the Guardian is well established. I believe you launched the Guardian into Australia. What did you think of Facebook's choice to block sharing of news content from Australia in this row about the sharing of, of funding with existing media organisations? Well, I mean, they were extraordinarily clumsy, as they are in lots of the things they do. And it was a, obviously a PR disaster. But I think from their point of view, news is really a tiny bit of what they do, and it's a massive headache for them. And it's difficult to know who to feel sympathy for in a battle between News Corp and <laughs> um, um, Facebook in, in Australia, where you've got the sort of government in, in Murdoch's pocket. Um, and I'm a little anxious about uh, people putting uh, face, Facebook into an arm lock and saying, you've just got to prop up the existing incumbents, mm. i.e. Rupert Murdoch. Um, if the money is genuinely going to go to, to a diverse range of media, then that's probably a very good use of Facebook's money. Yeah, the tech giants have made absolute fortunes using news content without paying for it for many years. They do have made contributions subsequently, especially the Guardian's own content. What brought you into the into the uh, Facebook orbit as a as an oversight board member? What did what did you want to bring into this? Well, I think the idea. I mean, the the, the whole issue of whether the social media can preserve pretty good standards of freedom of expression um, is, you know, one of the most important issues of our time. And there are parts of the world where Facebook and Twitter and other social media platforms are all there is. It's all that people have got. And it's a it's an immense moment to have given voiceless people a voice, it's particularly in very repressive states. And so uh, you, you don't really want Mark Zuckerberg regulating speech, but nor do you want some governments regulating speech. So the idea of having a, an independent board that could go in and help think about some of those things uh, is not the worst idea in the world. Nick Clegg has kind of you know, somewhat undermined his reputation by going to work inside the engine room of, of Facebook. Do you feel in any way that like, by being on this board, you're kind of restrained from criticizing them? Or well, how do you see your role there? Well, I, I, I'm there to look at the content questions. I mean, there, there are all kinds of questions where I think legitimate, you know, legitimate criticism of Facebook is is necessary. I mean, including on the content side, but you know, we could talk about the tax, the the algorithm, the the, the political exploitation, the, the the exploitation of privacy. I mean, there there's a lot going on there. But um, uh, I think my role at the moment is just to uh, look at the decisions they're making around content. Ian just mentioned, uh, talked about the, the government's advertorials, which I know that this is, you know, I've, I've worked in magazines and advertorials were on a very much smaller scale, kind of a bit of a bane of our life. And they were always part of broadsheets as well. What, what did you what did you think of the of this kind of government initiative to brand a, a metro story uh, as if it came from the metro? And yet it's coming straight from government comms. I, I would I would say they're, they're rattled. I mean, it's clearly things aren't going well. And uh I thought you, somebody mentioned the Sunday Times. The Sunday Times did some proper reporting this Sunday. Um, New York Times <laughs> did some proper reporting. I mean, I, I, I don't mean that disrespectfully to the Sunday Times, but, but you know, given that it was a Brexit-supporting paper, mm. uh, it, it is. It did some proper reporting, and it wasn't a pretty sight. You know, they found lots of people really suffering. Mm. Uh, and so, if you've got the Brexit-supporting papers beginning to do the, the story of how this is all unraveling, no wonder they're they're, they're going to raid the advertising budget. Yeah. I've got to ask you this before we move on. Famously, you learned piano uh, in your sort of ending years at the Guardian. How's lockdown been for that? Have you extended your repertoire? Have you gone free jazz? <laughs> uh, no, well, I, 
I had decided that I just wanted to play with other people. Um, I'm, I'm never going to be a solo pianist. Um, so lockdown hasn't been great for that. Um, uh, although I did with, there's a, there's a music professor retiring soon at, at uh, Lady Margaret Hall and we've just managed to record a trio in three different places. So I shall be interested to see how that is all stitched together in the end. First blue passports, now vaccine passports. As the government tries to stick to its data, not dates, timetable for unlocking, proof of vaccination could become a key factor, enabling people to travel, eat out and jump in the mosh pit at the Reading Festival. You go first. But the government haven't really made their minds up yet about what they're going to do with it. And the CRG are, of course, opposed. Ian, last Tuesday, Boris Johnson announced a review of the domestic vaccine passport idea, seemingly going against the government's initial view that they wouldn't be introduced. What what do you think is likely to come out of this? And should we worry about them? I don't know. They're clearly befuddled by the whole notion. Um, There is a world in which this would make sense. I mean, if you really were having very low take-up of the vaccine, then you could understand why, while still abiding by basic liberal principles on sort of, you know, basically just harm reduction, you would would actually be prepared to countenance this. Now, that's not the world that we're in. In fact, the take-up for the vaccine has been much higher than we expected looking at the polling on hesitancy towards the tail end of last year. So on that basis, it's really quite hard to work out what the problem is that this thing would solve. Because, I mean, we know what the consequences are, right? The the consequences are pretty clear. We, We would see in this country a really quite dangerous distinction on a bureaucratic basis um, on the basis of ethnicity and disadvantage. Okay, we know that that would be the consequence of it. So you're entering into really, really fucking dangerous territory. Worse, I think, than when we were talking about ID cards, you know, way, way mm. back when during New Labour's period. And yet, so if that's what you're going to do, you really do need to be able to describe the problem that you're trying to fix. And I don't think that they can do that. We don't have a problem with take up. We have, I mean, in fact, take up is much better than our wildest dreams at the end of last year. And then even as a solution, what exactly would it be fixing anyway? I mean, you're still, in, even if you've had the vaccine, you're still, you can still get it and you can still infect other people. So on what basis does that fix anything, even if you could get past all of those issues? It's all very, very confusing to me. So it seemed that he was right when they were ruling it out and quite wrong now that they're suddenly prepared to countenance it. There's this petition has just reached 200,000 signatures against vaccine passports. Is this going to shape up, do you think, to be the, you know, the more legitimate end of the government's approach to this? Well, I, d- I don't see that on a continuum at all. I mean, I'm sure you're going to get yeah. some of these guys from, you know, from the CRG or whatever the fuck these guys are called, you know, jumping on this bandwagon. But, but it's just a completely separate set of assumptions. You're basically asking, what is it that you're doing? I mean, you know, if we talk about lockdowns, we have a very clear idea of what the problem is that we're trying to solve and why this action would solve it. I mean, if we if, if we do it on that, it's just not there. And, you know, the, the thing that gets me is, for anyone to be talking about this, for them to even be investigating it at the same time as you've really failed on quarantine in the country, doing it too late and doing it ineffectively, just enough for it to be a pain in the arse and for us to be, you know, not being able to get in and out, but not enough to actually stop this, the new variants coming in. For you to be failing on that, failing on track and trace so that if there is a variant, we don't get to shut it down. I mean, the variants, that mm. is where any sensible person is currently looking, given the success of the vaccines, that we think about the variants, what can happen with mutations later that undermines the work that is taking place now? Because right now, right this second, we have the ability to actually um, consolidate 
the end of lockdown, to not have to go into it again, to get the vaccines out and to prevent any further variants coming in. Now, when the two policies of quarantine and track and trace aren't there in order to protect you against those variants that could undermine the vaccine, it seems Mm. insane to me that anyone in government would be spending any time investigating solutions to problems which do not exist rather than the solutions to problems which we know do exist and which they have necessarily failed to provide. Yasmin, a friend of the podcast, Nick Cohen, had a pretty strong piece in The Observer over the weekend saying that people who won't get vaccinated either because of, for religious or health issue reasons, or are just socially excluded, or perhaps, you know, there are people who don't follow the news who possibly don't even know about it, could end up as a, as a new underclass. It's very hard to find someone who doesn't know about the coronavirus, but there the, may be the availability of the of the vaccine and so forth. And I think Nick said something like in Birmingham, 60% of people over 80 accepted the jab in Alum Rock, a deprived and racially mixed part of the inner city, while 95% accepted it in Sutton, Four Oaks, an overwhelmingly white commuter suburb. Are, are we going to end up with a kind of de facto vaccine apartheid here where not the people have sort of decided that they don't want the vaccine, but circumstances, which means inequality, keep them away from it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a completely understandable concern. But, um, you know, I think generally, though, I mean, to Ian's point, I mean, the uptake has been pretty big. I think what's what's really important about this whole conversation, really, is at least from the government's perspective, is, is less about compulsion, like making sure, like, you know, forcing people to get the vaccine or whatever, more about persuasion. Like when it comes particularly with communities who either don't know much about it or have hesitancies about it, which I think um, need to be destigmatized because it's perfectly, I think, understandable that people might have concerns, maybe they're unfamiliar Mm -hmm. with it or whatever, to really kind of do that outreach to make sure that communities, particularly those that are disproportionately affected by COVID, but also those who are perhaps less represented among the vaccinated population, um, as Nick mentioned, that they have the resources and the information they need, and that crucially, it is easy for them to um, to get the vaccine. Um, and that's also true for other vulnerable communities, like people who are unhoused and undocumented. Um, sorry, undocumented migrants. Um, and, and there was actually a point in that piece which I thought was really good um, that I was looking into um, about undocumented migrants getting access to it and how there could be fears about their information getting passed on to the Home Office. Um, but I actually did see reports that the government has made it effectively so that they can register with the doctor get to, to get the vaccine without fear of their data being shared. Um, mm-hmm. So f- effectively applying what I think they've, they've called vac- uh, vaccine amnesty, which I think is, is a really positive step. And, you know, it, it makes sense. It's in the interest, I think, of everyone to ensure that everyone who lives here has access to that vaccine. There's a hugely mixed picture about, about hesit- hesitancy and also kind of uh, monitoring of the vaccine across Europe. Greece has digital vaccination certificates in place. Germany and France seem to have high levels of hesitancy. So like 40% of French people said they definitely or probably wouldn't get vaccinated. And then there doesn't seem, you know, the, it doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason to it. You're from the United States. You know, could you see a vaccine passport scheme being embraced? I don't know. I mean, I think if I remember correctly, one of the um, executive orders that uh, President Biden had signed um, had mentioned something about looking at ways that um, that, you know, your your vaccine status can be linked basically to, as I understand, like uh like your international like certificate of vaccination or whatever, so that mm-hmm. there's kind of a way to track that. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of pressure, obviously, to to do whatever can be done to open up economies. Um, and and if having something like proof of vaccination, kind of like what Israel's doing right now, is a way of doing that, I could I could potentially see an environment where people would be for that. Um, as for France in particular, though, I've actually been um, speaking to a lot of people um, for a story looking at why France is such a vaccine hesitant place. I mean, actually. 
has been that way for decades. So this is not necessarily new. But um, what it really comes down to, and I think this is probably applicable to a lot of countries where there are vaccine hesitant populations, not just France, is trust. Um, trust apparently in the government in particular and its handling of the crisis is kind of the biggest sort of indicator as to whether someone is likely to be vaccine hesitant or not. Um, And and I think in the case of France, at least, I know for the last decade, uh, confidence in the government has been quite low. I don't think it's exceeded 35%. So I think particularly in countries where you're seeing you know, a lot of distrust of the government, a lot of distrust of institutions, I think that challenge is going to be a lot harder. Alan Rusbridge, um, many, many years ago before the pandemic, Britain's media kind of played footsie with anti-vax sentiment around uh, the MMR jab and um, and a, a supposed subsequently completely debunked link with autism. And yet we are embracing this vaccine really kind of, you know, with great enthusiasm. Why are we so enthusiastic about it? And do you think that our media has on this one thing alone, at least learned responsibility? I think it's getting a bit better. I I think newsrooms have started hiring real scientists. Um, I've been very struck that this this particular issue, COVID, is probably one of the few moments in, in most journalists' life when what they say is a matter of life and death. Uh, and I've detected a sort of sober atmosphere in 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 the news, because I I think this really this really matters. It's not just a game like climate change or or uh, you know Brexit. This you know people are going to live or die depending on what you write or broadcast. Uh, so I think um, there has been a sense of responsibility over this. COVID skeptics have fought very hard to kind of own the civil liberties end of thing, and 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 have so far failed. Would a would a vaccine would a, a vaccine passport scheme perhaps hand them an undeserved win? Do you think? I don't. Know, I think I've just changed my mind the last five minutes because I found myself. I've always been very <laughs> anti ID cards, um, and I had been weakening on on vaccine passports and thinking if you had them, you know, just for a year or two years. Um, so they had a sort of built-in sunset clause. Would that be the worst thing if that got the economy moving again? But I think the arguments of Yasmin and, and Ian, um, I think I should go back to being a skeptic again. Amazing. <laughs> Podcast one, old-fashioned media nil. All, all guests should be like this on this podcast. This is golden, golden content. Now, do you use the news or does it use you? The past five years have seen a worsening nightmare of fake news, politicised news, war on the hated MSM, collapsing trust and lying as a political tactic, all accelerated by social media ecologies that accentuate the worst and the loudest and turn the world into one big long doom scroll. You can see the disastrous response to the pandemic in the US as what happens when post-facts, fake news worldviews run up against undeniable real world events. Alan Rusbridge's new book is called News and How to Use It, What to Believe in a Fake News World, and it takes the form of an A to Z guidebook on topics ranging from echo chambers, hot takes and impartiality to entertaining takedowns of people like Christopher Booker and James Dellingpole. Alan, is it a bit dispiriting that somebody has to write a book explaining a system that we all use all day, every day, media literacy? Well, I wrote it because it's so terrifying living in a world of information chaos. And what you would expect after five years of information chaos is that people would retreat to the safe harbor of professionally generated news. But but they're not doing that. I wanted sort of both to push journalists on, on forcing them to think why that is, and also to explain to readers who maybe have got out of the news habit what, what, what to think about 
news. I mean, you know, what, what to think about proprietors, what to think about advertising, how to think about sources. So it's both, it's a two-way facing book. It's, it's aimed both at audiences and at, and at journalists. The crisis in media is, is kind of part of that wider crisis in trust that, that we mentioned. And you make the point that societies can't function without facts. If you don't know what's true, then what decisions you make are not really of value because you're not basing them on, on evidence. But this is a systemic problem. It wasn't caused by a single, a single actuating person or, or set of phenomena. How do you fight back against something that has no single cause that's almost generated by its own system? Well, it's 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 really complicated. I mean, you're right. You're right to say that until about twenty years ago, people didn't have much choice. So the people who owned the printing presses and the broadcasting studios had a kind of monopoly on news, and you didn't you didn't have anywhere else to go. And now suddenly they lost that monopoly. They're very very cross. They they they're, they're furious. They're, they're disempowered. The, the the industry is shrinking. I mean, we know we know that story. I, I think. Uh, as well as journalism getting better, which I think it has to, because that's what we know about the internet, that, that anything that's not the best or the or the biggest or the quickest, it, it just doesn't survive. I think there's a case for looking at the best of social media, because I'm really interested in the, the new techniques of trust that are developing in the 21st century, which um, I think journalists could learn from. Well, well I mean, it's a, like I say, it's an A to Z. So it's, it jumps from the contemporary world and future of media into the kind of culture of Fleet Street and, the, and you know, the past. It's full of anecdotes and stories, pen portraits and so on. One of the things that stands out, it's not so much the problem that generated by the systemic changes forced on the media by technology. It's this kind of persistent old school idea that it's all a bit of a lark. And if you criticise the game for making stuff up or being fast and loose with facts or being partisan, then you're kind of not in on the joke and, and you're you're sort of a party pooper and you're not really part of the gang. And that, that's, you know, it's a, it's a rough old trade and if you can't handle it, you should get out of it. And the logical end product of that is our Prime Minister. who seems to think that everything's a rough old trade and everything's a bit of a joke. Um, is that something that... It, will that pass in time as different people come into the business? Is it something that's endemic, do you think? Well, it should it should change because you've got an industry that is is existentially threatened. But uh, you're right, you know this. It's all a bit of a joke. You can see that in the reporting of Boris Johnson in Brussels, mm. bent bananas. It was all uh, he described it himself as sort of throwing rocks over the over the hedge and hearing the the greenhouse glass shatter. Uh, and it you see it in uh, under F. I used Freddie Star at my hamster, which mm. you know. Freddie Starr never at the hamster. Kelvin McKenzie, who wrote that front page, went on to be a you know a persistent feature of the media landscape because it was all a joke. You know, please don't take my headline seriously. Please don't take my Brussels stories seriously. But I think now there are so many so many other options for media. Uh, the old jokey Fleet Street is not going to survive unless it works out what it's there for. Hmm. Who do you think are the biggest culprits in breaking trust in media at the moment? I mean, you you did these pen portraits of Booker and Dellingpole. How could you leave out Toby Young? It's so cruel. Who, who, where, where, are the, where are the major locuses of it at the moment? Toby, I mean, the point of having Booker and Dellingpole is if you think climate change is the, the biggest, most serious story of our lifetimes, and if you're trying to convince people that they should read professionally generated journalism because it's better than all the other stuff, why would you choose Christopher Booker and James Dellingpole to write about climate change? Because they know nothing and, and they, they get it all wrong. So what is journalism trying to do? I mean, I think it comes back to the, the sort of joke. I mean, Dellingpole is a, a, a jokey figure. 
I didn't say a joke figure, though, though um, you might also think he's a joke figure. But nevertheless, he's used to write to write about climate change. So what does that say to, journal- to, to, to readers about what journalism is supposed to be doing? Um, and, and sometimes I, when I was writing these chapters, I thought, well, I, I just can't answer that. I, I can't understand why uh, you would choose somebody who, who knows nothing about a subject. But I think the, the answer to that would be, I think the editors would come straight back and say, well, because people like reading it. People like reading stuff that they would feel serves that what they consider to be the higher truth. Maybe the, the Christopher Booker piece is not literally exactly true on the facts, but it's it's what I feel is right about what's happening in climate change. I think that's that's true, and it's very important because people often say about social media, it's full of echo chambers that it's people just listening to people they agree with. And actually, in the the, the obituary of Christopher Booker uh, in the Telegraph, he'd written for the Sunday Telegraph for thirty or forty years. It had this sort of phrase in which they said, "Well, the, the readers loved him, even though they knew that that what he was writing was not strictly true." So, <laughs> you know, there's a different kind of echo chamber at work there. But I don't think newspapers are going to survive unless they can prove they are better than the internet, which you know ought to be easy to prove. But but you know, but not if you're going to play like that. Toby Toby Young, another one. Um, why why would you get Toby Young to write about COVID? In the Telegraph. I mean, why? <laughs> because he tells Telegraph readers what, the, what they'd like to hear, true or not. Ian, yeah. I mean, you've been a mess, well, Westminster Journal for a good while now. Spin, as we used to call it, used to go through journalists to readers. Now it goes straight to voters via social media. Uh, and alongside that, people like, you know, any, everyone from Julia Hartley Brewer to Owen Jones has more clout than most politicians. Is is this idea that we can kind of restore faith in media Maybe a, a little bit sentimental, wasn't it? Was, wasn't it always a world in which the reader has to exercise their sixth sense, or are we just have to learn to live in this Mad Max world now? I think there's a there's a significant technological change, obviously, when it comes to social media. Um, but you're kind of right in that, that there are core aspects to the human personality which just haven't changed, and which we can work on in, in the way that we approach solutions to this stuff. I mean, the first, a lot of it comes down to what are the criteria that social media companies use when they present you with content? What are those algorithms based on? And most of the time, it's basically on engagement. You know, there's not, for a lot of the time, there was just nothing further than that. When it's YouTube, it's, you know, what keeps people watching? Now, that wasn't done for some kind of pernicious reason. That was done because they were thinking, well, you know, we're servicing the user. We're giving the user what they want. And that's how they make money. But now there is, I think, slowly a, a realization in social media companies that they can't afford to be that way anymore, that there are further obligations and responsibilities they have on the basis of it. Partly it's also, though, to do with what we do as consumers, right? Like there, there is a point where you just have to recognize if you want, if you don't want the content you consume, and that's not just journalism, it's also the video games on your mobile, it's also the podcast you do, you have to, pay, you, you really do have to pay in order to secure this kind of stuff. I mean, you do it by your clicks, but also you do have to direct money towards that which you think is quality and you want to see more of. And then I think like a bit deeper of, I mean, we we lambast media studies in this country. We mock it all the time. It's almost like a cottage industry, the right-wing economists to, to slag off people to do media studies. Truth is, media studies should be compulsory in schools in this country. You see with adults right now, and you have over the last few years, what happens when you're not literate in the media that you are consuming, especially in social media, but elsewhere as well. And we need to fix that for the generations coming up to make sure that people 
are given the kind of intellectual weaponry that they understand the media they're coming into contact with, why it's there, what it's trying to do, and its relative trustworthiness. There's a brilliant bit in um, Alan's book about uh, news amnesia, which I'd never heard of, and it's the phenomenon that when you come across a, a story anywhere, newspaper, online, when it's on a subject you know an awful lot about and you start to read it and you go, hang on, this is full of mistakes. This is completely wrong. I don't agree with this at all. What a terrible story. You will then go to another story in the very same paper on a subject you don't know a lot about and take it all completely on trust. Oh, yes, what a fantastic. But somewhat, somebody somewhere is reading this story on astrophysics, golf or the Yemen and saying, this is a, this is a load of rubbish, this. Alan, did, did, you, did this make you think differently about when you were editing The Guardian that out there are news amnesiacs? Suffering that very self same feeling. Well, you probably uh, you probably rely on that uh, in, <laughs> in some way, don't you? Um, I mean, I, I tried in some ways while I was editing the Guardian to to try and mimic some areas of social media. So, for instance, I I, I appointed an independent readers editor. So, if anybody felt we got anything wrong, they could they didn't have to come to me. They could they could go to them and they could get that corrected very quickly. And then we thought about. I put an entry in for invisible mending because actually um, there are some papers that if they've been found to have a mistake, will just correct it as though it never happened. But I think a more honest approach is to visibly mend in which you say, you know, people like the New York Times down the bottom will say this story was amended because we got the following fact wrong uh, in, in the first place. And these sort of techniques of how journalism is going to establish trust are terribly important, but they're not much discussed. Well, we had a, an incident like that last week on the podcast where I, I dropped Ian in it because I made a mistake in a script and Ian, we, with a podcast with Michael Hesseltine and uh, Ian, uh, using the information I'd give him, given him, made a mistake which Hesseltine corrected quite rightly. And we thought, should we take that out and make ourselves look like we, we knew what we're on about? We thought we should leave it in because it's actually, you've got the conversation in there, you've got the, the, the correction, but also it's, um, you know, I would like to take this opportunity to say that was my fault, not Ian's fault, but you do at least kind of show you're working as it were. What we're not mentioning, of course, is that in the background, he's just doing that to cover his ass because really we're, we're still going to change at least 12 parts of this podcast <laughs> to make our than we are. Alan, you wrote the book in the middle of the pandemic. Um, major kudos for actually achieving something amidst this crisis. Um, <laughs> and, um, and, it's but, his banana bread. Yeah, <laughs> your sourdough. The pandemic obviously being a crisis in which access to vital information, as you rightly noted before, was, you know, in some cases, a matter of life and death. So I'm wondering if you observed any changes to the level of trust in journalism during this crisis, or if you feel like, you know, the utility of quote unquote real media was kind of through it. Well, uh, I, I mean, I've seen lots of different surveys which which aren't very encouraging. Uh, the, the, there was a Sky News one fairly early on, which had the, the mainstream media right down the bottom, and I, I'm not sure that it's really improved. The BBC has held up well, and you know, God knows why anybody is talking about you know, undermining the BBC or getting rid of the BBC at the moment, um, because in a world of information chaos, having a universally accessible Pretty reliable news source seems to be a no-brainer. But um, so the B BBC held up well, um, but but there, there, I don't think there has been a, a stampede of trust back to mainstream media. Another question I had was um, 
so something that happened at my magazine, The Atlantic, but I noticed happened um, with other publications as well, is that when the crisis began, um, a, a lot of places that are behind paywalls decided to make access to coronavirus coverage free, um, or at least accessible to, to people who perhaps aren't who aren't subscribers. Um, and, and I was wondering if if you've kind of observed if, if that had any real impact on, on readers trust. Cause I mean, at least with the Atlantic, I, I've kind of noticed that there was quite a lot of, you know, I, I think when we had announced it, that there was, there was kind of sense that it was goodwill that, you know, that this is a public service. And and I'm wondering if, if that's kind of something that you think ought to apply to future crises as well. I mean, I know that's something that's been done for publications, say when there's a storm or a really important election, but as, but as publications kind of shift, um, their, you know, their, their ways of making money. I'm wondering if that's something that needs to be considered. C- completely. I, I think that's a, a brilliant thing to have done. And I, I think playing up the public service element of what journalism is, is, is the future. It has to be. I mean, I, uh, you know, although I'm critical in this book of, of a, a lot of journalism, and I would like journalists to, to, journalism to be better, in my heart, I've done this for 40 years, I believe journalism is as essential as an ambulance service or a hospital service or a police service. I think you need people in society who say, this happened, this didn't happen, this is true, this isn't true. Um, of, of course, you know, I'm not against paywalls, and if paywalls work, that's terrific. But again, it comes back to why we need a BBC. Uh, I, I am worried about societies, look at America for the last four years, in which the very best information, the New York Times, is rather expensive and hidden. And that means that 90-something percent of the population uh, rely on Fox News or talk radio or whatever. So this this gigantic uh, gulf between the information elites and the rest of us is something that that should be deeply worrying. And yet a large part of the reason that the mainstream media is is on the back foot and has been in throughout the social media era is, is revenue. Social media ate the press's lunch. And you were... At The Guardian, you were very committed to it should be free at point of use, the NHS of news, you know, and take the consequences for the finances as as that came. And that kind of meant that the rest of the press in Britain at first had to follow that same model of being of being open and not charging a point of use. Could it, in hindsight, could it have been could have been done differently? Because the Guardian now has this successful program of membership. The Times has gone paywall. Most of the smaller magazines, like the Spectator and the New Statesman, you get a number of free articles, but it's paywalled. If the Guardian hadn't been so committed to free access, would do you think that the perhaps the finances of pre-existing traditional media might have been uh, more robust? Oh no! Okay, <laughs> um, you you have to read the history of it all. I mean, everybody tried early on to put up paywalls, and they all gave up because they they didn't work. So everybody was free for a, for a very long time, and that 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 was the normal. Uh, and then s- some people then started um, working out how to do paywalls. It hasn't worked by and large in the in the local press. It, it just hasn't taken on. And the 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 the, the Reuters uh, study of who will pay for news still finds that 90% of people won't pay. So it, it, it's great if we can persuade people to pay. I'm, I'm not, not against paying, and I'm, I'm admiring of the people who've made it work. But it's not, a, it's, it's not yet a, a, a magic bullet that's going to work for everybody. Do you think we'll ever see a day when we'll get to the sort of the, the Netflix of, of journalism, where you'll be able to pay a sort of set, I don't know, you know, eight, 12 pounds a month and get access to a variety of different papers? Or is it, are the internal relations between them 
just too fraught for it ever to be viable. Well, I think that's right. I mean, lots, lots of people have tried and um, people have done sort of micropayments and somebody's tried to do the sort of Spotify of news. And I mean, I would sign up in a flash, of, of course, if somebody did that. But, but the people who have tried say that they just find it impossible to have, you know, conversations with 10 different publishing houses, each of whom is, is convinced that they, they can make it alone. But I, I think in the end, it will end up with something like that. Mm. Well, actually, the analogy is the music business, which had to be dying before it would accept the idea of the unbundling of the album. You'd imagine that might be a parallel with with uh, print media in that things would have to get an awful lot worse before they accepted the, uh, the the Spotify of news, which I would sign up for in a minute. Just in closing, then, um, Alan, I mean, we've got GB News launching soon. Andrew Neil's stuff is happening soon. Uh, you discuss in the book how the US and the UK are mirror images in that uh, in the US, TV channels are polarising and newspapers are kind of more uh, balanced, shall we say. And in Britain, we've got immensely polarised newspapers and we've got legally enforced balance of a sort here. Do you think that's going to change with the launch of these kind of insurrectionary channels? I hope not. I mean, I, you know, the world is not short of opinion and it's not short of right-wing opinion. I, I think we should be concentrating on reliable news. That's, that, that's much more important than opinion. Uh, and we should be, I hate to keep repeating myself, we should be propping up the BBC and getting behind that because you can see what Murdoch's been trying to do. I was, I was reading my, my predecessor at The Guardian, Alistair Hetherington, wrote a book in 1985 in which he wrote about how the Murdoch press was, was launching these vicious attacks on the BBC and he said, in 1985, we, we have to watch out for Murdoch. He's a relatively young man. And we, we see how he wants this story to end. And um, he's trying again. Do you think that we are essentially waiting for Rupert Murdoch to leave the scene as an active player before things will really begin to change, in British media at least? Well, the insidious thing about Murdoch is, is that, I mean, not, not only is he a very determined businessman, but, but he has this political grip. And, I, you know, there was a period round about the phone hacking trial uh, when he was sort of, you know, brought in the, the most humble day of his life. We remember all that. And it looked as though politicians were going to sort of hold him at, at a distance. And that hasn't lasted. So, I, you know, I, I think it probably, I don't think Lachlan is, is like that at all. He's, he's just not that impressive. Um, so um, probably we do have to wait for Murdoch to go to the great printing hole in the sky before uh, things will change. Do you watch Succession? Of course. Who's Kendall? Can we depend on Kendall? <laughs> James? Uh, well, I'm, I'm very interested in James, actually. I, I think he's he's sent out all kinds of signals that he's uh, a rather interesting and not-to-be-predicted figure. So... Um, I mean, he's quiet at the moment, but I've, but I've, you know, let's hope, let's hear it for Kendall as long as he doesn't start rapping. We've already touched on Britain's vaccine rollout, but another country is enjoying unprecedented jab success, and it's Chile. Veronica Diaz-Cerda is an international relations teaching associate at Aston University. She explains how the South American nation has managed to outperform Latin America and most of the West in vaccine success. Hello, my name is Veronica Diaz-Cerda. I work for Aston University for the College of Business and Social Sciences. The initial response of the Chilean government was contradictory. On the one hand, it put its efforts to increase the health system capacity through the purchase of mechanic ventilators and other medical equipment. 
but on the other hand, it promoted a policy of dynamic lockdowns only in specific neighborhoods, and this situation triggered a sharp increase in COVID-19 cases. The Chilean government also backtracked on the plan to use immunity passports for those people who had coronavirus. So all these problems led to the resign of the Minister of Health last June and the appointment of a new minister. And since then, we have seen a much uh, clearer strategy on how to face this pandemic. So far, Chile has administered COVID-19 vaccines to more than 3 million people, a million people a week, more or less. And so that put Chile in the forefront of the vaccination drive in Latin America. And uh, it is among the top five countries in the world. The effectiveness of the rollout can be explained by multiple reasons. Uh, First of all, uh, Chile has ordered uh, close to 90 million vaccine doses. That is enough to fully vaccinate its population twice. And the Chilean government moved very quickly into negotiations with many pharmaceutical companies. And also, it pinned its hopes on the Sinovac vaccine developed by China. In contrast, most European countries have chosen only Western vaccines, despite the comparative advantage of Chinese companies' massive manufacturing capacity and their vaccines being easy to transport. The fact that uh, Chile is an outward-looking country, highly open to trade, uh, clearly contributed to securing a higher number of vaccine doses. The other factor is its extensive primary health system. Uh, It has one of the highest vaccination rates in Latin America, along with Cuba. These factors, obviously, have not been built overnight. These factors have to do with investment in public health made much earlier by previous governments before Pinochet's dictatorship. And actually, I think it's quite remarkable to see how the national health system in Chile has been able to survive uh, and show strength and efficiency despite all the budget cuts and dismantlement suffered since uh, Pinochet's regime. Chile has been plunged into a socio-political crisis of big proportions since the end of 2019. Massive demonstrations, violent riots as a reflection of discontent with the political and social inequalities imposed by Pinochet during dictatorship. So the pandemic obviously has exacerbated the deep inequalities in the country. So I think that the rollout has given not only a sort of hope of uh, unity, but also an opportunity to focus on the role of the state as a provider of social protection. And I see this successful vaccination campaign as a very big window of opportunity for change. Finally, happy news for young TV viewer Yasmin Sahan of North London. They're bringing Frazier back. <laughs> Kelsey Grammer's neurotic Seattle psychologist Frazier Crane will return on the Paramount Plus streaming platform in 2022. It's not yet known if Jane Leaves, Perry Gilpin and David Hyde Pierce will return as Daphne, Ros, and Niles. Sadly, John Mahoney will not be back as Frazier and Niles' father, Martin, having died in 2018. 
Is this return of a beloved sitcom a good idea? Will the comedy of the comparatively stable 1990s translate into the 2020s when the entire democratic world should be calling Frazier for psychiatric advice? Yasmin, you are ultimate Frazier fangirl. What does the show mean to you? Everything. Um, <laughs> no, it's, um, I mean, I, every, anyone who knows me and, and now soon people who don't will, will know that I, I grew up in a, a massive Frasier family. Um, it's just one of those shows that, you know, when you watch reruns for comfort, like I watch Frasier, there's just, it's these like bite-sized, witty, just so enjoyable pieces of television that um, I still watch to this day. So um, I, and, and mind you, when I moved to this country and couldn't get access to it on Netflix, I was gutted that I had to get my family to send me all the seasons in a package, um, which I'm thoroughly enjoying. And yeah, I presume you have to get a region free DVD player to watch them on as well. When a, when a show is more than just a hit like this, it, it is always a, it is always kind of freighted with meaning and kind of ascribed as speaking to our times and so forth. Frazier ran from 1993 to 2004. Do you think it played that role? Was it a was it a zeitgeist show? I mean, so I'm going to out myself by saying that I actually didn't really watch Frasier, I think, while it was running. I got introduced to it quite later by my parents. But I think so. I mean, I think that just, you know, it speaks to the fact that it just ran. I mean, one of the most successful American sitcoms in TV history, just running for 11 seasons. I mean, from what I remember just watching, I feel like it just it captured so much. And it, it may not even necessarily kind of got into politics or anything like that, at least not that I can remember. But I think it got into a lot of like culture things quite a lot. So in that way, I think it was incredibly important. Is resurrecting it a good idea? Is it a bit like redoing Faulty Towers as an Airbnb? <laughs> I, I mean, as someone who's who's a bit wary of revivals, like I watched the Gilmore Girls one, for example, and I wasn't crazy about it. I mean, I don't regret watching it, but, you know, it just wasn't great. I, I was a bit wary when I first heard this news. But then I remembered that, you know, Frasier has done this before. Before Frasier was on Frasier, Frasier was on Cheers. So mm. Kelsey Grammer is actually quite adept at continuing this character and bringing him into different storylines and different contexts. So, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not ready to count him out just yet. I do think that there is a possibility to make a, a new Frasier great, but I think they need to make it distinct from the old one. I think any attempt to recreate perfection, particularly without John Mahoney as Martin in it and without the other um, characters reprising their roles, I, I think is really important. Well, that's really that is really important, isn't it? Because essentially, the the comedy in Frasier came from the two boys with their pretensions and their fine wines and <laughs> their their opera and their highfalutin ideas of culture, uh, having to kind of ac accommodate to themselves the fact that their dad didn't want fancy Napa Valley wines; he just wanted a Budweiser and to and to drive a Winnebago around America at unfeasible speeds. And now that John Mahoney's not there and Frazier's going to be in his seventies, it changes the, the comedy dynamic, irrespective of who the supporting cast is, doesn't it? Totally, yeah. And you know, I think I think you know, fans like myself would also hope that Frazier got on with his life. And you know, ideal. I mean, when when we left the show, um, he was on a plane headed for Chicago to to see a love interest, Charlotte. So I mean, I I personally am hoping he either ends up with Charlotte or ends up with someone else. But you know, I think we want to see Frazier take on a new challenge in his life. I think to go back to kind of, you know, the, his previous, I mean, the whole point of the ending was that it was an exit. He was leaving KSEL. He was leaving his family and friends. He was leaving his hometown, Seattle. So I, th I think we'd want something different. And I think there's an opportunity here to bring a beloved character and just make it something totally new and relevant. There was a, a large part of the comedy came from the fact that it was kind of situated in that weird stable period in the 1990s when 
America and by extension the kind of Western world had sort of time just to think about itself and focus uh, focus on its neuroses and the kind mm. of the conceit of the psychologist I'm listening and so forth. We now live in a we 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 live in an extreme world now, and I'm just picturing. I mean, we're, we're promised a third act that will be different. It, we, we will not be a phoning show at a at a radio station with a psychologist handing out advice. But I, you know, I tried to picture what that would be like, and I just imagined endless people ringing in to ask Frazier about the paedophile pizza ring, the weaponized 5G bats that are controlling my mind, and all this kind of thing. It just seems to be it, the original series seems to be from an alien world. I don't know. I think Frazier is going to be a TikTok star. Personally, I, I think that's probably where the show's going. But no, I mean, you're absolutely right. And I think that there is one aspect of Frasier that I think could be well adapted. And you kind of, you brought it up, um, which is that, you know, this was, this whole show was a clash of characters. You had highbrow um, Frasier and Niles versus their sort of blue collar, beer guzzling Martin. You know, you had a family that argued and fought and disagreed on everything and just had completely different values. And a lot of American families are like that today. Um, Mm. You know, we politically disagree on so much. We don't see eye to eye on a lot of things. So in a way, I think, you know, if even if it isn't the same family, if it's not the same setup, I think having something like that and showing families that can have all these disagreements but still love each other because at the end of the day they're family and they overcome these differences, that actually might be what we need. Um, and, of course, that applies to more than just an American audience. I think that would apply to people here as well. You sent me a piece by Helen Lewis which said the whole thing revolves around Martin's disgusting chair that Fraser <laughs> wants to get rid of and Martin will not get rid of. And the whole, that's, just, that's the core of the show. Oh, yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of nostalgia. And I, I think they, you know... I do hope that much in the same way during Frasier, they kind of made references to Cheers in his life there. I do hope that even if they don't bring a lot of the old characters back, that, you know, we still find out what happens to Niles and Daphne and their family that, you know, hey, maybe Lilith will pop up. Maybe we'll finally see Maris. Alan Rusbridger, to my amazement, you never watched Frasier and it's the most Guardian-y TV show going. How did you manage to miss this? Uh, well, I missed it. I missed the West Wing. I missed Sex and the City. I missed The Wire. I, um, I, yeah. I have, I have watched Shit's Creek, the whole of Shit's Creek. That's brilliant. Right. Okay. That's not, yeah, we'll let you off for that. Ian, you yeah. quite liked Frasier, didn't you? You're a, and you're a aficionado of reboots. I, I was, yeah, I, I am. In fact, and I, I quite liked um, Frasier. I mean, like the co- look, I, 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 and I can't claim to speak to her in the way that Liz Mead does. Um, but it always seems to me like the ones that work is, and this the same applies when you're taking something from one sort of material, whether it's a book or whatever, turning it into a film and, and translating it, is can you get the core of it and then change the stuff around it? Because you can't keep everything frozen in formaldehyde where it was. You, you have to update it. And, and the core, it seemed to me, was that, that thing you were talking about, about neuroses and, and like stuff around class and status and intellectual and, and values and trying to jumble that together. And you would probably do it by, I presume, by turning Fraser into the father figure um, and having him battling out with, with people that are younger than he is. But as long as you just get that core, it seems to me that you can update things all the time by changing the circumstances and changing the era and changing the location. And to be honest, on neurosis, I mean, you're dealing with something that is fundamental and would always be around. I don't think that the, the, the paraphernalia around it should necessarily damage it in any way. I can't see any reason why it wouldn't be like quite successful. Yasmin, I'm going to ask you, as somebody who is now feeling the way I felt in 2005 when they brought Doctor Who back, tell <laughs> the listeners which is the best episode of Frasier that they should attempt to rent on a streaming platform. 
That's like trying to tell me to choose my my favorite child that I don't have. Um, That's why I'm asking you. You know, I I was in in preparation for this. I I went back to an episode called Three Valentines because Mm. there is one scene where, which I think just speaks to the genius of Frasier, which is one scene where Niles is preparing for a date in Frasier's apartment. And there's a good five minutes where there's no dialogue. It's just him bumbling around, making mistakes, being as weird and neurotic as he is. And it's like this physical comedy and there's this theatrical music and it's almost like a modern day Charlie Chaplin. And just like a scene like that just perfectly encapsulated to me just how hilarious and perfect this show was. Um, And I hope we get stuff like that. So yeah, I would go back to Three Valentines and I would find the Nile scene in particular. And you don't need to know any context really about the show. It's just hysterical. What was the Doctor Who episode you would you would say if you were in that scenario? Pyramids of Mars, obviously. Obviously, surprised you even ask. Tom Baker, mummies, the devil himself in, uh, imprisoned on uh, in, a, in on Mars. You know, it's obvious. I'm surprised <laughs> you'd even go there, Ian. We come to the end of this week's bunker. Before we go, we're going to ask the panel for their escape routes from politics. What's been diverting their minds away from political debate and diplomacy, Ian? What's your escape route this week? Oh, I've been reading um, uh, an old Punisher Max comic series by Garth Ennis. <laughs> people know their Punisher, but Punisher's quite a weird character because if, if you make him, you know, he's basically a mass murderer. And if, if you make him a hero in any way, you find yourself in a really sticky moral position writing these comics. And the same with, with his representation on TV. You really need a super intelligent writer. And going to these old Garth Ennis comics, I mean, first off, they are brutal in ways that can barely be described. I mean, almost laughably brutal or mean. But at the core of it, he just has this approach towards Frank Castle, the Punisher, which is that, you know, he basically gets created in Vietnam, you know, this one night in when he's in the war in Vietnam. And so he uses him as this vehicle for America's psychological breakdown over Vietnam and just translates him into this weird, hard-boiled superhero narrative. It is one of those things that's like absolutely mean and ludicrously vicious. And yet you just look away slightly under the surface. It's very, very compassionate and extremely sophisticated and very, very good. It's one of those old comics I've just come back to for the first time in about 10 years that I was just blown away by its maturity and intelligence and the elegance with which it's done. I get the fear that like 2% of people who read The Punisher are uh, agreeing with me and you on this, and the other 98% want to storm the Capitol and uh, reinstall Donald Trump as the president. There were a lot of, lots of Punisher t-shirts on show in that particular riot. Yasmin, how about you? What's been your uh, escape route this week? Honestly, just the nice weather. I've been trying to go out <laughs> for more runs. It's sunny now. It's like barely light out past um, 5.30, so... Yeah, that's what I'm, I I also periodically get these emails um, about races that I signed up for in the before times that keep getting postponed. I don't know why they keep teasing us. So like, oh, you know, now it's in September, now it's in November. So I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not, this clearly doesn't say a lot about my athleticism, but like the only thing that really gets me to run and train properly is the fear of a race. But I have nothing to fear right now because they're just going to postpone it. So yeah, the weather is, is <laughs> what I'm distracting myself with currently. All the, all the bills will be coming in soon, Yasmin. Alan Rusbridge, you've said you've been watching Shit's Creek. What else have you been using for the time that is not consumed by politics and world events? Well, I've been watching two things in parallel. One is Adam Curtis, um, mm. who I can only take a little of because um, it's so intense and so disjointed and 
I'm never quite sure what it's saying, but but uh, but it's a completely absorbing and, and wonderful mm. to look at. But then I need something to to recover. Um, so I've been watching. Is it called Lupin or Lupin? Lupin. Oh yes, Lupin on Netflix. That's a good way to balance your meds. It's, definitely, it's absolutely stunning. I love it. Yeah. It's so clever and it's so it's it's beautiful, but it, it's also so subtle and wonderfully worked together. Part two yeah. of season one is coming soon. It's absolutely wonderful. Yeah. And, and a very good antidote to um, Adam Curtis. There you go. They said it was the end of this week's Bunker podcast, but that was a lie. Thanks to our special guest, Alan Rusbridger, for joining us. Thank you. I, re- I really enjoyed it. And thank you to Yasmin Sahan. Thanks for having me. And Ian Dunt. Thank you very much. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. Don't forget to subscribe. Of course, if you back the Bunker on Patreon, you'll get an invite to our live Zoom. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. Backers of the programme get an honorary salute on the show, and here are some now. Thank you from me to Iona Mitchell, George May, Karina and John Matthews. Hello and best wishes from me to Laura Hussey, Julio Gotti, Marty Jobson, and Chris Davis. And finally, hello and thanks from me to Andrew Jackson, Rich H, Lynn Parker, and Neil Casey. We'll see you all next time. The Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Yasmin Saran and Ian Dunt. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Bunker.